Welcome to The Bounce. I'm Bob Lapine. I'm the pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, also a member of the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. GCC is responsible for this podcast, and our goal is to plant churches and strengthen leaders. I hope you're finding the podcast helpful in that regard. And if you'd like to find out more about the Great Commission Collective, see whether your church aligns with who we are, and maybe join with us in helping to plant churches and strengthen leaders all around the country and and throughout the world, go to our website, which is gccollective.org. Again, it's gccollective.org. Today, we're going to hear a dialogue I had with an author named Neil Shenby. I don't know if you've been to Neil's website. His website is shenbyapologetics.com. Neil grew up in Delaware. He attended Princeton as an undergraduate, became a Christian while he was at Berkeley, where he did his PhD in theoretical chemistry. The subject of his dissertation was quantum computation, including topics in quantum random walks, cavity quantum electrodynamics, spin physics. I I could go on, but you wouldn't understand it any more than I do. He's worked in postdoctorate work at Yale and moved to Durham, North Carolina in 2010 to do research at uh, Duke University. You can find out more about Neil again on his website at shenbyapologetics.com. He wrote a book last year called Why Believe? That is a look at the subject of apologetics and how we need to be winsomely equipped to defend our faith. It's one of the things I appreciate about Neil and his approach to ministry is he defends the faith in a way that is respectful and is winsome. And again, you can find out more about him at shenbyapologetics.com. And there's information about the book, Why Believe, in our show notes. And this particular conversation happened in front of a group of dozen or more men at our church as we thought together about what it looks like to engage with unbelievers in gospel conversations. Tell us what theoretical chemistry is first. So theoretical chemistry is like what they do on the Big Bang Theory, a show that I have never watched one episode of, but I'm told that they use like whiteboards and pencil and paper and write equations. And if you haven't watched that show, then The Beautiful Mind, the movie with Russell Crowe that I have seen, it's like when he's scrawling the equations on his room at Princeton and the windows, that's what I do or did. (laughs) And have you done that professionally in some setting? Oh yeah, yeah. So I worked at, got my PhD at UC Berkeley doing that. I did a postdoc at Yale, and then I did a, I was a research scientist at Duke University for four or five years. Wow. So what brought you, if I, if I remember right, your conversion happened in Berkeley, right? When That's you were right. a student yep. at Berkeley. So tell us that story. Sure. I was a, so I, back in a little bit, I went to undergraduate at Princeton, and when I became, when I started my degree there, I was kind of spiritual but not religious. I, you know, I kind of would have probably said I was a Christian. I never went to church, never read, I read the Bible once all the way through because I like to brag about reading big books, and I was like, I read the Bible all the way through. And, but you know, I was completely ignorant of Christian theology. And, uh, but when I, at Princeton, I met my future wife, Christina, and she was an actual believer, and I, I fell in love with her, and she tried to resist my, my charms for, for <laughs> some time, but I eventually began dating. And that's always I say it's a bad idea, you know, because Christians can't marry non-Christians, but what we intended for evil, God intended for good. 
So that was that was the first exposure I had to an actual Christian. And, you know, I, she was very different. She did not uh, was not full of herself. She was brilliant. She was beautiful. But she just was not always thinking about her image maintenance like everyone else or like I was certainly. And anyway, so that was the first step. And then we went to graduate school at Berkeley together. And I said, OK, I'll attend church with her. And so at our church, I began meeting Christians who were intellectually just advanced. They were they were professors. They were graduate students, postdocs. And so I had to consider, wait a minute, what if Christianity is actually true? And then the third part of that was actually reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Street Letters, about 20 times as a non-Christian. And that really influenced my thinking about, like, wow, what if this is true? And, and I, it, especially because it had such insight into my just psychological state. He, you know, Lewis is a brilliant uh, observer of human, the human condition. And when he began to talk about how the, you know, the patient in the, in the, the novel is being tempted, I could see myself in that. Mm. And he could understand so much of my inner life. And I thought, how can he do that? And the answer is because he understands human nature because he understands Christianity. So those three things combined to basically make me ask myself, what if Christianity is actually true? And uh, at the time, in, the, in my book, I talk about it, but at the time, I didn't really like it. Uh, when it really came home that this could be objectively true, I had all these questions that I was angry about. Well, how can God be, how can he not be the, you know, how, how can people that are sincere and believe other things like Islam or Hinduism, how can they go to hell? And how come God can judge people? He's a loving God, isn't he? And all those other things. And my, you know, Christina said, remember, basically, I demanded, what are the answers? And she said, I don't have all the answers. And I think that really, in retrospect, showed me that she was worshiping a real God. Mm. Because if you have a real God, you don't have all the answers. If you, if you create your own God, you have all the answers because he's just a protector of you. <laughs> if you worship the God of the Bible, there are things that he says and that he is that might unnerve you and disturb you, but it's because he's real, like a real person. Lewis described himself as the, the most reluctant convert in England. There was some reluctance on your part to giving in to Christianity? Yes, and but like I said, I think it's interesting how salvation is experienced because if you look at my father-in-law's a missionary and he said if you look at the gospels and what it takes to be saved in the gospels it basically comes down to saying yes to jesus there's often very little it's just jesus comes to you and says follow me and if you say yes then you've crossed from death to life and for me i remember the night when i think i became a christian was just me wrestling with all these things and being really traumatized just this is really bothering me but eventually I, and i believed in god but i said to him you know i don't even know anymore who you are i thought i did now i don't i don't even know if jesus is your son but if he is i will follow him hmm. talk about a, a threadbare confession of faith right <laughs> if jesus is i don't know if he is but if he is I was sincere. I, I will follow him. And I think I was regenerated at that moment. Wow. I had a long way to go. Long, don't get me wrong. I don't aim for a minimal confession of faith from people. I try to explain the gospel to them. But, you know, I think people talk about the divine humility that would accept a prodigal son on this, this barest confession of faith. The thief on the cross saying, just remember me. 
Remember when you come into your kingdom. So I think that's when I cross from death to life. I want to ask you about the whole subject of apologetics. Um, because there's a long history of uh, apologetic writing and thinking going back to uh, Thomas of Aquinas and his proofs for God, Lewis and and mere Christianity, Tim Keller in our day with the reason for God and, and his follow-up book to that. There are different approaches that people take to apologetics. And it feels like we have been through an era where apologetics was kind of almost uh, scorned, like that's not, that's, nobody's going to be brought to faith through apologetics. Mm-hmm. It's going to be through the apologetics of love or your lifestyle. That's what's going to bring people to faith. Now, now it feels like there's a little bit of a, a tidal wave coming the other way saying we need to give people a ready answer for the faith, the hope that we have within us. What's your observation about where we are in, in our uh, thinking about apologetics in our culture today? I think that we definitely do need to do quote unquote traditional apologetics. I think there's no replacement for defending the faith with reason and evidence and it being ready to give an answer to those who ask for the hope that's within us, First Peter 3.16. But uh, so I'm not denigrating the idea that we should live a life that adorns the gospel, that brings people, that tracks them to Christianity. But Christianity is a propositional religion. It has certain beliefs. <laughs> so. Is, there's a you know there's a saying I think it's wrongly attributed to some early Christian but you know uh, preach the gospel at all times when all its fails use words I think R.C. Sproul Jr. says preach the gospel at all times if necessary rebuke those who say if necessary use words <laughs> because his point is you can't preach the gospel without words because the gospel is a statement about what Jesus has done you can, I, I can live a life consistent with the gospel that makes you ask well why do you live that way. But I can't tell you Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead without words. That's a that's an informational kind of. And the reformers talked about the three components of faith, you know, uh, hearing the message, assenting to the message, and then trusting the message. Well, if there's no if there's no message, you can't do any of those things. You can't hear it, you can't believe it, and you can't trust it. So we have to come to a place where we're comfortable telling people the good. I mean, gospel means good news. If there's no, you can't communicate good news with just what interpretive dance, I mean, (laughs) songs, it's news. Right. So tell them this news and and then sure, make it look attractive by how you live, but you have to communicate the truth of the gospel at some point. Theologians have talked about what our approach should be to apologetics, whether it's evidential based in evidence, whether it's uh, historical, the, the Bantillian school of presuppositional apologetics. You, you've looked at all of that. What's What's been your analysis of those different approaches to apologetics? So I don't get bogged down in apologetics, uh, the methodology at least. So I, I would probably consider myself a soft presuppositionalist, uh, meaning I'm not going to ask you by what standard, by what standard a thousand times. Uh, but behind all of my, if you look at the book that I wrote, um, it, it does, you could fit it easily into a classical approach, you could fit it easily into an evidentialist approach at times. But underneath all of the evidence and things that I give, um, I do assume that someone's presuppositions about reality is going to color the way they, they assess all the evidence. So I, I understand that. I, I think, frankly, when I talk to people who fall into all three camps, they tend to actually converge quite a bit. So I think it's kind of an unfair, I'm, I'm kind of joking about the by what standard thing. Uh, people do, even presuppositionalists, do give evidence. Um, they do, they will say they do. 
it's only when they get pushed back that they say, okay, now we have to go back and re reexamine why you reject the evidence. So I think that's fair. I, I, so that's why I'm saying I'm a soft presuppositionalist. I, I'm happy to, to deal with evidence and reason and logic and, and work people through the objections. But I do also say, and at the end of the book, I spent a long time on the gospel itself because our real problem is not a lack of evidence. It's a hardened heart. And you can't overcome that with a better argument. <laughs> the, the Holy Spirit has to overcome your hardened heart through the gospel. And, and if that's the bottom line, and I agree with you that it is uh, the hard heart, what, what role does evidence or logic or argumentation play in the softening of an unbeliever's heart? It, it, does it play any role at all, or do we just need to be preaching the gospel to them? So actually, yeah. It's both and. So in the section, the final section of my book, which I can talk about later, I basically argue that the gospel itself is a rational apologetic. It, it gives you the best reason to believe Christianity is objectively true, just the gospel, the message that Jesus died for your sin, rose from the dead. That message is an argument on its own without anything else. The gospel is true. Um, so, but you say, well, do we just preach that message? I said, yeah, you totally can. If you feel like I don't know these arguments and the evidence for the resurrection, like I can't deal with the Kalam cosmological argument or fine tuning. And all I can do is tell people that Jesus died for their sins. That's all. That's all you need. I, I'm here to comfort you and say, hey, you're doing enough. Preach the gospel, tell, call people to repentance and faith. And, and yes, by all means, read books and try to get better at dealing with evidences. But you, so gospel is sufficient. However, don't forget that the apologetics task, there are many roles. So for example, yes, you might be talking to people who are hardcore skeptics, whose hearts are hardened, and that's when you have to just point them and say, look, um, the problem is not the evidence, it's your hardened heart. Like my hardened heart. We all have hardened hearts naturally, and so the Holy Spirit has to come in and change your heart. However, you may also be talking to someone whose heart's being softened by the Holy Spirit as you speak or, or in the past. You don't know what they're going through. So you could have people in the audience who are being who are wanting this to be true. They're being led along by cords of kindness. God's calling them to himself. And so your reasoned argument is going to stir in their hearts or make them recognize, oh, this is actually true. Of course, I want it to be true, but actually it's intellectually true. So that's another kind of person. Another person is a Christian in the audience who's wondering, who's me doubting and saying, I, I, I feel it's true, but is it is it really rationally, you know, comprehensible? Is it, is it make sense? Is it is it believable? And you're saying, yeah, it is. Here's the evidence. So I don't think I think we make a mistake when we assume that every person that's listening to you is in the same place. And so, we, uh, you know, an apologetic argument can be made for the sake of the Christian who's struggling, for the sake of the Christian who wants to be equipped. For the sake of the, you know, the atheist who's being led by the Holy Spirit to Christ, for the hardened atheist. And one thing it can do is these arguments, uh, in some ways, they can simply be used to show where the problem lies. In other words, if someone says to me, well, I can't believe in God because miracles are physically impossible, then I walk them through the reason that's a false statement. And then they say, well, I can't believe in God because Jesus never existed. And I'll walk them through why that's a false statement, too. At some point, I'll turn around and I'll say, look, now I've answered your top three objections. They were all shown to me not good ones. What this is showing to you is that your unbelief is not really about the evidence. 
let me show what it's really about. It's really about sin. Mm. Like all of us, it's the main problem. So their apologetics is being used to to basically remove the uh, the excuses we all have for our unbelief and show them the true source of our problem, which is always pride, a hardened heart, our enemy towards God. So again, these are all ways in which apologetics can function for various purposes. There, there's a story that Sheldon Van Auken tells in his story, A Severe Mercy, where he was a student of Lewis's, he and his girlfriend who became his wife, and he was a skeptic, and he was writing letters to Lewis with all of these questions, and Lewis was patiently and kindly writing back with apologetic answers, and at one point he wrote a letter, and Lewis said, I've got your most recent letter, I'm not going to answer your objections or your questions here, it's clear to me that the hound of heaven is after you, and it's just a matter of time. <laughs> and Van Auken got the letter and was, first of all, a little incensed that his interlocker would not engage with him. But then he began to wonder, what, what if this is true? If, is there a hound of heaven? Is he after me? Has, is he onto something? And of course, he later came to faith. But but you're right. The, the, at the end of the day, um, people are not are, are not standing apart from Christianity because they haven't had their intellectual arguments addressed. That's a smokescreen for the moral, for the uh, the hard-hearted response that they've got. We, the, the apologetics, I've seen it happen, where it can soften somebody and say, this is not unreasonable to believe this, and gives them a, a confidence that they can take this step of faith without without um, feeling like they have committed intellectual Harry Carey to do so. Mm. Um, but I, I think all of us have to be clear that it's we're never going to argue somebody to where they go, okay, all right, you've answered all my my objections, so I guess you're right now I'll believe. that That's not how the Spirit works in bringing somebody to faith, right? Well, I think you, you, you can't argue someone into the kingdom, but you also can't preach them into the kingdom, and you can't love them into the kingdom, and you can't do anything because you can't get yourself into the kingdom. Right. So that is when people say that in a way to say, well, you can't, you shouldn't do apologetics. I'm saying, well, you shouldn't do anything then. <laughs> we're, we're equally incapable of doing anything to bring anyone, including ourselves, into God's kingdom, but God commands us to do certain things because he uses our efforts. You know, to bring people to the kingdom. It's not our sufficiency that we're counting on. We're counting on God's sufficiency. So I, I, I do think that, but yeah, there are all those reasons, all those ways in which apologetics can be beneficial to people, whether Christians or non-Christians. You identify in the book what, what you would say are kind of the three biggest historical arguments, the things that are the, the hurdles for most people, the problem of evil and, and pain, um, the, the, the fact that God is unseeable and unknowable, and I'm trying to remember, what's the third one? I can't remember. Evolution. It's, oh, yeah, the, it's not, the, the yeah, issue of evolution. So mm -hmm. so I just want to unpack all three of those for a minute and, and say, if, you, if you're sitting with somebody in a coffee shop and he says to you, yeah, but if there's a loving God, it, we've all heard it. Why, why is there so much pain and suffering? How, how can he allow this evil to happen in the world? Where do you start with that question when it gets thrown at you? So it's very similar to what Lewis says. I ask him, you know, what, what do you mean by evil? Do you mean something you don't like, or do you mean objective evil, like actual evil? If he says, well, just my subjective preference is for things I don't like, and I say, well, how can God exist when there are Brussels sprouts? Because I hate Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so I want you to answer the problem of Brussels sprouts before I believe in God. And you would say, well, that's silly. You know, Brussels sprouts, are you don't like them, fine, but who has an argument against God? 
Well, exactly. If evil is just something you don't like, well, there's no problem because, you know, God's existence doesn't depend on whether he makes everything that you like and only things you like in the universe. But the real objection is, no, 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 no. I'm saying there's objective evil. There's actually that the universe is not the way it should be. And Lewis points out, well, what do you mean by the way the universe should be, ought to be? You don't recognize a, a crooked line unless there's a straight line to which you can compare it. In the same way, you can't say the universe is the way it ought not to be unless there's some way the universe ought to be. But where do you get that idea from? Unless there's a God who acts sort of like is a, the, the, the plumb line for how the universe ought to be, then you can't complain the universe isn't the way it ought to be. And especially if you're, you're an atheist or a naturalist, the universe is just here by chance. It's a quantum fluctuation and this random yeah, it gets happenstance thrown together. Well, no wonder it doesn't fit your own personal preferences. So they, basically, when you say there's a problem of evil, then you have to be saying there's an objective evil out there against which, but measured against some objective standard of good. But the premise that objective good exists is part of the moral argument, which I discussed in chapter five, where I think, yeah, five. So uh, it's, it's putting you to God. The minute you say there's an objective standard of good and evil, and by that standard evil exists, I'd say, I agree. But that standard is God. And so you're, you're basically smuggling God in as a standard for judging good and evil, the very same time you're accusing him of allowing evil. But he, so must, be, he must be an impotent God if evil exists and, and he does have the right standard, but he's not doing anything about it. He's not correcting. He's allowing it to happen. What about his impotence here? Right. So that's where I actually say, good question. So not every religion can answer that very well. You, yeah, you can be like, well, God exists, but then he's impotent. He can't, he can't solve the problem of evil. And there are other religions that would say of other reasons why God you know, either does not or cannot solve the problem of evil. I, mean, I would actually say that Christianity offers a very unique solution. God did solve the problem of evil on the cross. Hmm. Right? We're, we're, waiting, we're waiting in time for that to come to fruition. And well, why are we waiting? Why doesn't he solve it right now? And the answer is because you're not a Christian yet. You know, Peter talks about how God's having patience, giving you a chance to repent. If God came and destroyed evil today, you'd be destroyed. If God had destroyed evil in the year 2000, I'd be destroyed. So he's giving you a chance now, before he returns and destroys all evil, to switch sides. So it's almost like, I think it's just of this too, it's like the, the, you know, the, the thief who, who looks around and says, Why, where are the police? Where are the police? You see him holding the, the he's red-handed holding the bag of money from the bank, and he's crying out, where are the police? Well, the police are waiting for you to give yourself up. They're giving you a chance to repent. And if you keep it spitting in his face, well, one day it'll be too late. So it's an interesting take on the problem of evil. It has been answered definitively, but now he's giving you a chance and everyone else a chance to repent. What about the issue of evolution, which in the last hundred years has, I was thinking about this the other day. It's, it's it, Pre-Darwin, it was like evolution was not even uh, a legitimate hypothesis. Everybody kind of all tacitly accepted that we live in a created world. It just, it, it, the, the evidence is so strong for that. Mm -hmm. But in the last 100, 150 years, we, we've had a complete reversal of that. The evolutionists have won the scientific day. And, and now to, to presuppose anything different uh, makes you anti-intellectual. So somebody says, we clearly, the, science proves there was a big bang and that's why we're here. Right. 
So I do two things in that. So basically in this chapter, I'm addressing the feeder beliefs. So basically, if you believe that evil shows that God does exist, well, then throw out all the evidence we talked about, you're, you're just done. So all I have to do then is I don't have to make a case that one answer is right. I simply have to show that that claim, evil disproves God, that's not a good objection. In the same way, in this section, I just say, you can't say evolution disproves God. Well, why not? I give two reasons. Like if you compare the, sort of the, the major ways of Christians are thinking about evolution and creation, um, the big point of contention is whether or not uh, all modern species can uh, have arisen through, through largely through random mutation and natural selection alone. Is that enough to produce everything we see from uh, human beings to bacteria to fungi, everything? Is, is natural selection plus um, uh, random mutation alone sufficient? And I give two reasons why the answer is no. Um, one reason is that philosophically, you have to ask, what do you mean by random? When you say random chance alone plus natural selection can produce all species a day, what do you mean by random? It's a pretty big assumption. It's a metaphysical one. So, for example, I point out that Christians, everyone today would agree that, you know, the, every gene in my body, every gene in my DNA, God, had, you know, foreordained every hair on my head, everything about me, all my all my every base pair in my DNA, God knew in advance what it would be. He, he ordained it. From, from birth, from conception. I, I am who I am at conception. But no one thinks that because the combination of the sperm and the egg, uh, and that one sperm and that one egg combining to give me my genome, that's a random process. There are all kinds of different, there are millions of sperm, you know, all competing to fertilize the egg, and the creation of the sperm itself depends on all kinds of random processes in the body. And you can take biology textbooks, embryology textbooks, Everyone agrees that that is, quote unquote, a random process. But at the same time, Christians would never say, oh, because it's random, therefore God did not know or even foreordain my exact eye color, hair color, the mole on my nose, everything. So the point is, there's no, so when you say it's a random process, what you're really saying is just this, that we don't know, we can't sort of predict it. It happens in a way that's beyond our comprehension. You're not saying that God does not ordain it and guide it. He does. He guides every sperm and every egg and every gene in my body, every gene in my DNA. So randomness just means really that we can't predict it. Does not mean uncaused, unguided, completely haphazard. That's a metaphysical claim, and Christians deny that. Christians definitely better affirm that God's sovereign over every atom in my body. But if that's the case, then calling it, you know, natural selection plus random mutation evidence against God is as silly as claiming that embryology is evidence against God because it's random. It just doesn't follow. It's a bad. You're, you're equivocating on the word random. The other thing I point out, and this is a really, this is an odd argument, but it's it's amazing. I was talking to a, a molecular biology student at Duke years ago, and he said, um, "Isn't it obvious that we all came from natural selection?" And I said, "Okay." Here's the thought experiment. So you're saying that uh, species today, their production was totally unguided. He said, yes, they're unguided evolution. There's no theistic anything. I said, okay, imagine this. Imagine that um, some atheists have speculated that the first life form, like the first bacteria on Earth, the RNA, whatever, it actually was brought to the Earth by aliens. That's a, I think I quote in the book, is it um, Watson or Crick, one of those famous scientists, Richard Dawkins actually speculates maybe aliens brought the first life form to Earth because it's so hard to imagine that chemicals, inorganic chemicals randomly, spontaneously created the first life form. 
So some scientist, atheist, has said maybe aliens brought the first life form. I said, okay, sure, I don't know. I don't think that's true, but hypothetically, sure. <laughs> Let's follow the atheist and say, uh, aliens brought life to Earth. Well, imagine hypothetically, in a thought experiment, imagine those aliens stuck around on Earth and visited Earth every thousand years or so to conduct experiments on evolutionary dynamics. So every few thousand years, they'd come back to Earth, they'd take a few few organisms, they'd put them inside like a, you know, a, a, a laboratory, and they'd breed them. Like you can breed horses, you can breed dogs. They'd breed these organisms, they'd select for certain the traits they wanted. They wanted, they wanted bacteria with slightly uh, higher metabolism. They'd want uh, uh, dogs with slightly longer necks, or they'd want horses with slightly thicker hooves. So every few thousand years, they'd, they'd build these huge alien pens, they would bring animals and they'd mate them and breed them until they were a new species. Or they maybe they even inject new DNA into them because they're crazy aliens, they have hyperfuturistic technology, whatever. And then they leave again, come back a thousand years later and do it again and again and again. Now I asked this microbiologist, I said, would the evidence that we have from genetics, from, you know, uh, uh, from paleontology, the fossil record, would that rule out that, of that kind of process with aliens actually guiding evolution, like breeding? And he said, he thought about it, he's like, well, no, I guess everything will look exactly the same. The genetic record, the fossil record, everything will look the same. But I said, but look, what I just described to you is by definition guided evolution. It's guided. The aliens were guiding it like a, like a breeder guides the, the evolution, the microevolution of horses or dogs. And the guy was like, well, yes. It's like, so you just granted that what we have today in the fossil record and the genetics is totally compatible with that kind of alien guidance. He said, yes. He said, well, then why couldn't God do the guiding? He said, okay, good point. <laughs> so my only point is that I'm not, do I think aliens came? No, I do not think that. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only saying I'm diffusing the claim that, uh, evolu that current day evidence rules out God. Because I'm saying for both philosophical and scientific reasons, we can, we can believe that one, God's sovereign over everything that looks random to us, and also two, that God could have guided the process of evolution and left things looking exactly like they do, according to the geneticists and the paleontologists. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a very uh, conservative claim. It's a very, 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 it's a very mild claim that just shows you you can't use evolution to disprove God. Can we believe that in six 24-hour days, God spoke the world into existence? I think you can. So my, um, I get asked this a lot, and my own personal opinion is that I'm not a young earth creationist. But I, it's obviously, I think this is where, I'm, I'm kind of a fundamentalist, frankly, uh, in my theology. This is where I'm most quote-unquote liberal, and so I definitely never make that a major point in talking to non-Christians or even talking to Christians. And so, because I still, you know, if what I strongly believe that Bible's inspired inerrant word of God. So if I'm misinterpreting, you know, Genesis one and two, I don't want to mislead other people. So I definitely don't make that a big stumbling block either for Christians or non-Christians. But but in your so you would say it's not intellectually untenable for somebody to hold to a young Earth view. So when I looked into the evidence, I would say that a lot of the evidence goes against a young Earth view. Now, it could be, like I said, we're misinterpreting the evidence, absolutely. And it could be, the other. if you look at old thinkers on the subject, a lot of people hold to some kind of appearance of age. Um, you know, young Earth creationists hold to, yeah, some things look a lot older than they actually are. 
And again, that's well, that's that's completely plausible, right? I can't prove to you that something doesn't look old. The whole point is it does look old, but it's an appearance of age. I think that option is definitely one that many of your young Christians appeal to, and, and I'd say it's more of a philosophical assumption than a scientific one. I mean, you can't type. I mean, Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist, and he actually, I think he was the one who coined the phrase last Tuesdayism. He asked other people, atheists, Christians, whatever, he said, how can you prove that the whole universe wasn't created last Tuesday with all of our memories intact? And the answer is you can't prove that. You just, it could have been that's the way, that's a, it could have been that way. And so if you're going to grant an appearance of age, I think, like even Bertrand Russell was willing to do to an extreme extent, then yeah, I think that's possible. Um, but I guess like I said, I, it's not a point I belabor in my talks. Got it. Um, yeah, the, the, the question then about an historical atom, how do you, how do you resolve that? Yeah, and I mentioned in a footnote um, that I do hold to a historical atom, and I think it's important because of how Paul connects the historical atom to a historical Christ. It's like, you know, the fact that Adam was our, we're born into Adam, we're naturally into Adam's family, we're born by grace supernaturally into Jesus' family, that he's our federal head like Adam was. So I think the doctrine of a historical Adam is very important theologically. Um, however, what I point out, especially because I'm, I'm addressing non-Christians primarily in this book, I point out the, the argument that I hear from atheists is completely backwards. What I often hear is this. If there wasn't an original Adam, then there was no historical fall, and there is no problem of sin, because there's no original sin. That's their reasoning. So therefore, I don't need a savior, right? And I say, wait a minute, that's totally backwards. We can see the effects of sin all over the world. Right, we just—it's everywhere. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said it's the most empirically demonstrable doctrine that you can ever imagine. We see sin in our own lives, everywhere in the world, in every human heart. The fall explains why we're like that. It's an explanation of why we see sin. So the but the, so the idea that if there's no Adam, there is no sin is like saying if there's no Adam, there's no you know there's no universe. Like something that's not computing right. <laughs> The reason that we can see sin everywhere is explained by the fact there was a historical fall. But it doesn't, if you deny the historical fall, all you're left with is needing a new explanation for why there's sin. You don't get rid of sin that way. So I, people like Christopher Hitchens will literally say, if we don't have Adam, we don't need a savior from sin. I'm like, why, did you stop sinning? <laughs> you're doing it backwards. Start with the reality of sin. You see it, it's in your own heart. And then when you accept that, then the Christian explanation for why we're all that way begins to make a lot more sense. But you can't get around the problem of sin by just denying that Adam ever existed. It's still in your there and it's in your heart. And you experience it. You do evil things all the time. Uh, but again, I, so I would say definitely I do affirm that the historical Adam is, is a crucial doctrine precisely because the Bible connects it to things like salvation, our need for rescue, and so forth. But I think that atheists think about this backwards. So. Yeah, so I don't want to get bogged down in this, but am I understanding you saying that in the process of the Earth uh, developing with guided evolution, that at some point God inserted a created man who 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 he brought into existence by His Word, or was was the human species a part of an evolutionary process? Right, yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm agnostic about that. I think I actually lean towards like a creation de novo, like God created a new species. Um, but again, I, and, and I think that even, and this is, I'll admit, I'm not a biologist, but I'm a theoretical chemist, so this is not an area of specialty for me. Um, what I would say is that 
uh, one of the things that I think is often, I forget where I heard this first, but the, in, in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, talks about God making Adam from the dust of the ground. I think I was in grad school at one point, and I think the rest of us biologists there, but I was asking, you know, what is what is dust, dust of the ground, actually, like actual dust? <laughs> what is it made from? They're like, that's oh, mostly like organic matter, sloughed off skin cells. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, like, like organic matter is like full of like did organic molecules like DNA and things like that. Like, yeah, I guess. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So could it be that God took pre-existing like, little dust and fashioned, but that would have been what, DNA? Like could he taken DNA and refashioned it and made a human being out of it? And I guess like that, maybe that's what it, me- it meant. He's actually taking pre-existing DNA, not a, you know, a pre- an ancestor, but actually taking DNA and refashioning it into a human being. The point is, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I think, I lean towards that, that Adam and Eve were, they're certainly special creations of God. They're not just random. I mean, I, I reject the idea that there is random, uh, unplanned, unguided anything. But I, I lean towards God specially creating Adam and Eve. Um, what the mechanics are, I, I don't know. Let me jump to the third big objection that you identify in the book, which is the hiddenness of God. Why, if, mm. if God exists, why does he not reveal himself to us more overtly. What's your what's your argument there? Right. And again, this is an example of a problem, like the problem of evil, that you can try to answer as a theist, like sort of vaguely. And I think you're, you'll hamstring yourself. It's better to answer that as a Christian. So if some vague theistic prime mover exists, well, why doesn't he reveal himself to us? Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. But from a Christian perspective, Here's the here's a one answer at least that I give. Our fundamental problem as human beings is sin. And so if you're asking why doesn't God reveal himself uh, more clearly, I mean he's clearly given us lots of evidence, but what about more clearly? I mean if God is God, he could make miracles happen all the time. You know, angels could materialize on Times Square, they could let themselves be filmed. So everyone could believe that yes, intellectually God exists. The problem is that would still not change our hearts. You, there are people who believe that God exists and hate him. They loathe him. They want to kill him. That's a, pos- that's a state of, that you can do that, right? You can believe that some supreme being exists and be angry with him. So the uh, analogy that I use is imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine you're, you're in your room. You're an atheist. You're in your room one night, and you say, God, if you're there, appear to me. So boom, Jesus appears to you in your room. You know, he, he shows you, he's like, look, I am Jesus. I have nail prints in my hands. I, die, I died on the cross for your sins. He does miracles right in front of you, whatever you want, want him to do. He does those miracles for you in your presence. And so you're intellectually, you're 100% convinced he exists. No question. But then he turns to you and he starts just reeling off his commandments. He says, okay, from now on, I need you to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Here are my uh, sexual ethics. Here's uh, how sex is designed between a man and a woman. Uh, here's uh, how I expect you to use your money, your time. Here's how important evangelism is. Go and tell your family and your friends that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that they are they're heading towards hell. But if they repent and believe the gospel, they can be rescued and brought into my family. Start going to church, start reading the Bible, start praying. He basically gives you an outline of what it means to follow Jesus. The question now, here's my question. I'm not going to ask you, do you believe in him? Because I've, he's given you all the evidence you need. We've established that, yes, intellectually, you believe in him. My question is this. How do you feel about his commands? How do you feel towards him? And I think if you're honest with yourself, 
you feel claustrophobic. Hmm. You feel uncomfortable because he's making demands of you that you don't like. He, in fact, he's demanding that he is your Lord now, not you. So here's the issue. You can fully have an intellectual belief that Jesus is Lord and still reject him. But if that's the case, then why ask, why doesn't Jesus give, why doesn't God give me more evidence? When evidence is not what you ultimately need, because we've just established that even all the evidence in the world can't change your posture towards God, your posture towards Jesus. So my point is what you really need is not more evidence, but a changed heart. So that's the, that's the final section of my book. How do we then, how do we, how do we change our hearts? Can you even change your heart? Well, that's, that's a good question. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus comes to mind where, mm -hmm. where Lazarus is basically arguing, if, if you'll give them more evidence, they'll believe. And, mm -hmm. and Jesus says, they didn't believe the evidence I've given them. Why do I think more evidence is going to provide that for them? Even a greater evidence, even a man coming back from the dead, they're not going to believe that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so as you look at uh, a typical, I mean, we're all just average Christians going about our, our daily lives, our encounters with people in the workplace who have different philosophical views than we have, have mm. different political views than we have, who have kind of ruled out Christianity. That if, if it's true, if, there's a, if they're vaguely spiritual, but they, they certainly don't want to be Christians because it's so countercultural today. The sexual ethic, uh, who wants that anymore? And, and uh, they, they just, they're not attracted to it. How do, mm. how do we get over that hurdle and begin a conversation to help lay the groundwork for the gospel to take root in that person's life. So I definitely am a coward when it comes to, you know, having spiritual conversations. Oh, that's not true. Let me back up. People ask me, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, this is great. I love to talk to you about the gospel. This is wonderful. But initiating is like, you know, is hard for me. And many hard for many people. Uh, so over the years, I've, you know, found ways that I'm less cowardly about. So one thing I used to do at work is I'd have a stack of uh, Tim Keller's Reason for Gods on my desk at work. <laughs> the stack just sitting there. Clearly not one, like I'm reading it, but a stack. So be like, why is there a stack of books in your desk? Oh, you want one? That There you go, right? Because it's kind of odd to have a stack of these books. Uh, so that's one way. Or if you're more bold, you can just say, hey, I'm reading this great book. I've read this great book. Would you like to read it? I'll tell you what, it's really important to me. You read this book and give me your favorite book and I'll read that book and we'll meet and talk about them. Again, super non-threatening. Everyone loves to recommend their favorite book to people. So you recommend yours. I mean, the Bible's, you know, should be your favorite book, but it's kind of long. I get that here. <laughs> read this Bible and in three years, get back to me. But give them a you know, shorter book for them to read and then let them ask you questions about it. Uh, very non-threatening. Um, those are two ways I find. And then a third way I heard from my friend, John, who worked for Crew. Would you just ask people what they believe, but they believe. Don't say, you know, here's what I believe. Just say, hey, I'm curious. Uh, do, you, do you go to church? Do you go to a synagogue or a mosque? Like, what do you believe about just reality? I'm just curious to know. And then actually just let them, let them talk. Don't say, wait, you stop. Now it's my turn. But actually, my friend John was super, super friendly and super great guy. He really loved people. He really wanted to know what they believed. And of course he wanted to share the gospel with them, but he was like, I just care about you. Tell me what you most value in life and why you think that way. Uh, so, that's, so they're all three very, even for someone like me, who's not very extroverted and who just wants to be left alone. But those things are, are ways to 
engage people that are very non-threatening. I, th- I think I think I have this right. I think Tim Keller, when he was a student at Bucknell, there were people giving away copies of Mere Christianity out on mm-hmm. the quad, and he grabbed one. And it was part of what God used in his life to begin his journey. So I, I think you're right to have a stack, to have tracks or to have easy to read books, those things that we can then engage people with, that can be a very compelling, non-threatening way. Uh, that, that I think that's a great strategy. I, I want to... Uh, I want to ask you two questions that are unrelated to the book before we let you go. The first is about the book that's coming out. When does the CRT book come out? Uh, and and uh, just give us a little preview on what that's all about. Sure. So after I finished this book, Why I Believe, I was looking around for other projects and I met my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who has a PhD in education and cultural studies and, and does critical theory. Um, and we began, he began guiding my reading and we began collaborating, uh, trying to help evangelical Christians see what critical theory is, understand it, and then understand why it's not compatible with Christianity. So that's the, this, is, this book will be the culmination of kind of like a six or seven year project of ours. And um, it'll come out in the fall, probably October, uh, published by Harvest House. And it will go through uh, basically what are the ideas behind all of these manifestations of wokeness we see in the culture, whether it's LGBTQ stuff, whether it's uh, racial stuff, um, whether it's social justice, what are all these, what are, what are behind all of these movements? And we answer, we explain that we, it is written for the layperson. You do not need a PhD to read the book. It's written for an average audience. We said it's, it's pitched towards um, soccer moms, baristas, accountants, doctors, you name it, anyone can read it. Uh, but it's also very uh, precise and accurate. So right now, uh, don't, don't, don't be scared here, but it has over 750 footnotes. Wow. Uh, just to show you, and it's not because it's impossible to read, but we document everything. Y- you're gonna come away from this book with a thorough understanding of these ideas. We take time to actually quote the theorists themselves, let them speak for themselves. We're not going to give you just a straw man. It's all, no, we're going to say, here's what they say, block quote. Here's someone else, block quote. So you can hear them and the way they think about reality. And yeah, our, our basic premise and thesis is that these ideas are incompatible with Christianity. And they are infecting our culture, certainly, but also the church. And so we have to stand up against them and understand how to engage them and ultimately to critique them from a biblical perspective. You've already, because you've been dealing with this for years on your website and online, you already know the kind of anger that gets aroused when you start making these arguments. When a book comes out, I mean, are you are you ready for what's coming your way when this book comes out? Well, I've been on Twitter for five years, so you know that's gonna, that toughens you up. It makes it that hardens a man. So yeah, hopefully I'll be um, I'll be able to weather the storm. But it it will be controversial. But I hope people will give it a chance. Um, if you so the way it's written, the first eight chapters are just descriptive. We spend six chapters explaining these ideas just descriptively. No value judgment. No criticism. Nothing. Just here's what they say and giving you lots and lots and lots of primary source quotations. The seventh chapter actually is um, positive insights that you'll hear from critical theorists. So we point to several statements you'll hear that they make 
that are nonetheless true. They're not just, these are things that Christians should affirm because they're actually true. So we, we want to make sure people don't just dismiss an idea because it sounds woke. It's like, well, but it's actually, it's grounded in reality. So we should, we, we make it very careful to say, hey, there are some limited claims that are made that you can accept as a Christian. And the eighth chapter is basically what is what do evangelicals believe about reality, about God, about Jesus? Because we, we want non-Christians to read the book and to understand where Christians are coming from. And we really, we also present the gospels. We hope that people will read it and actually become Christians. But then only in chapter nine, do we finally begin to offer any critique. And when we do it, we are very hard on these ideas. We, I think we try to, try to earn the right to be heard and say, hey, we've taken the time to understand these ideas very carefully, to explain our own assumptions about who Jesus is, about the Bible. And only then do we move on to critiquing them from a biblical worldview. And what I've observed about your interaction on these subjects is you can stay fairly dispassionate and stay at a at a level of argumentation that respects the other person and doesn't get down in the mud with them, even when they're trying to pull you down. Um, that's just a part of how God's wired you, and or 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 you're reading First uh, Timothy two where it says that, or the Second Timothy two where it says that you know the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but uh, you, you seem to you you seem to have a grasp on. The, the way we're going to win the day is not by fighting fire with fire, but by holding up the truth and letting the truth stand on its own. Right. And I'm also a scientist, right? So yeah. kind of in my genes. Good point. So last question. Um, you're, you're farther along in the book, Biblical Critical Theory, than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're 40% of the way. It's I'm about 10% of the way, and it's slow going through the it book. It is, yeah. Man, oh, man. Um so explain to everybody here, uh, biblical critical theory is not about critical race theory. It but, is not. But tell what, tell what the book's about and why you think it's important. Well, I'm only 40% through. And like you said, I was shocked. I usually read pretty fast um, and can absorb a lot of material because uh, the last seven years I've been reading like post-colonial scholars and post-modernists. But um, it uh, – so actually Chris Watkin, the author, reached out to me on Twitter months ago was like, would you like a copy of my book? And I actually replied with a uh, one of those reaction gifts that was like, that's a bold move, Cotton, let's see if it pays off as a joke. But then I said, yeah, sure, send it to me. And so I, uh, I began reading the book a few weeks ago. And from what I can tell, unless it takes a huge detour in the next uh, you know, 300 pages, um, the book is using the word critical theory in a he would say even older sense than it was used by the neo-Marxists. So critical theory, the phrase, generally is attributed to Max Horkheimer and the Frankfurt School in the 1930s. They were neo-Marxists. And from that critical theory of the Frankfurt School spun off things like critical race theory, queer theory, post-colonialism, post-modernism. These are all critical social theories under this umbrella of critical theory. Well, what Watkins says is he's using the term in, in an older sense to just mean critiquing culture and examining it with a critical eye. And in that sense, does the Bible critique culture? Well, of course it does. <laughs> we would agree with that, right? Bible critiques culture. Right. Like this thing is evil. This thing is good. This thing should be emulated. This thing should be rejected. So of course the Bible critiques culture. So he's using that phrase, biblical critical theory, not to promote critical race theory or queer theory or post-colonialism. 
is using it to say, let's let the Bible's storyline and themes like sin, covenant, uh, justice, let those themes in the Bible shape our view of reality. And in that sense, so, so I think uh, for obvious reasons, that title totally freaked people out. Like, right. I totally get that. <laughs> but, but from what I can tell, if you take away that title, I, I actually said the book should, should be better named uh, Biblical Cultural Analysis. I think that would be a more apt name. And that's what it's doing. Right now, like I'm in the chapter, he's literally walking through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, 4 through 10, Genesis 12. He's just going through the Bible like story by story and explaining how it should affect how we view things like um, creation, uh, human nature, sin, the fall, covenant, promise, those themes in the Bible, which I think is no one should object to that. It's a very good way of thinking about how we apply the Bible to life. And so anyway, that's my take on it. Making a lot of very cogent uh, philosophical arguments along the way. I mean, it's, yeah. I've been fascinated by how he's engaging with these subjects. I mean, there are things that I could critique about the book, but but he's not promoting critical race here. That's not right. one of the critiques. The, the critique would be like, well, I don't agree with his model of how you should evaluate different arguments, but, but that's a different issue. I think the idea that he's promoting critical race theory is, is just mistaken. It, I, it's understandable, but if you read the book, I think your your fears will be assuaged. Keep keep your review under 5,000 words, will you? Okay. I'll try. It's a long, I mean, the book is like, what, 300,000 words? I mean, I'll, I'll do my best. Neil, thank you. Thanks for the time tonight, and uh, th this has been very helpful. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, would you guys thank Neil? Well, again, we have been listening to a conversation with Neil Shenby. By the way, Neil and uh, co-author Pat Sawyer have a book coming out here in 2023 on the subject of critical race theory. Uh, there's information about his upcoming book and his book, Why Believe, in the show notes here for The Bounce Podcast. There's also a link to our website at the Great Commission Collective, gccollective.org. If you'd like to find out more about what we do and why we do it at GCC, planting churches, strengthening leaders, what our core convictions are, and whether your church is missionally aligned with who we are, there's more information available on the website, gccollective.org. And again, the information is in the show notes. Now, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk about teenagers and how we minister effectively to teenagers. You've heard a lot about teenagers who get to college and abandon their faith completely. There's a lot of concern about that, and rightfully so. But what about the other kids, the ones who get to college and are thriving, the kids who become active disciple makers on their own after they leave home? Dr. Danny Hinton did his doctoral research on that subject. What, what did those kids have in common? What's their backstory? We're going to talk about that with him next time on The Bounce Podcast. You may want to have your student ministries pastor uh, listen in with you or share the link with him. And if you haven't yet left a review of The Bounce, or if you haven't passed along the links to this podcast to pastor friends of yours, please do that. Help us spread the word about this podcast. We appreciate it. We'll see you back next time for the next edition of The Bounce. The Bounce.